Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And my guest today is a return guest and he's expanding a little bit on a topic that I think is very pertinent to the work that you do. And that is somatic complaints, those kids that keep coming in with chronic headaches and chronic stomach aches. And we're just wondering, am I missing something? And then sometimes there's that voice in the back of our heads. Could this be Munchausen by proxy? So take a listen, and I think Dr. Malice will help you sort this out a little bit. Dr. Nasu Malice is faculty in child and adolescent psychiatry and pediatrics at the University of Michigan Health System. He received his medical training, master's in public health, and a certificate in leadership in neurodevelopmental disabilities from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He then completed triple board residency and fellowship training in pediatrics, adult psychiatry, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Liaison, and Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. He is the Service Chief for Hospital Services at C.S. Mott Children's Hospital and a member of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Physically Ill Child Committee, member of the Executive Board for the Psychiatry Residency and Training Examination Board, and co-chair of the Pediatrics Committee for the American Association of Emergency Psychiatry. His areas of clinical interest include pediatric agitation and aggression management, neuropsychiatric care, delirium, and somatic symptom and related disorders. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Malas. Hi, Nasu. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for inviting me back. Oh, I'm so excited to have you back. It's always fun to have my my encore guests. Um, so, so much to to talk about and share, and I really appreciate your time because I know right now in pediatrics and child psychiatry, things are super busy. So in the past 12 months or maybe even, what are we going on, two and a half now? Mm-hmm. Have you seen any any shifts in pediatric psychiatry? Any difference in trends or needs? Yeah. So I, I think a lot of the trends that we've seen previously have uh, continued to persist. You know, we we gather data monthly, and and I'm part of several national collaboratives, and the trends that we've seen previously continue to persist. I think they've been muted a little bit because we've been managing those trends in the cyclone of this infectious surge that we've seen, where uh, so much of our capacity to manage all these competing crises has been really challenged. Um, but we're continuing to see very high levels of youth presenting to the emergency room or other emergency settings with suicidal thoughts, uh, self-injurious behavior, and still see a pretty significant amount of eating disorder, uh, see a lot of youth uh, presenting with uh, aggression as a manifestation of a, a variety of psychopathology, uh, see youth presenting with um disruptive behaviors, uh, lack of access to mental health services resulting in a worsening of mood or anxiety, 
Uh, and then, you know, a lot of youths that frankly probably get missed um, or maybe misqualified uh, youth presenting with physical health symptoms that are related to psychological distress. And, you know, I'm part of a collaborative of the Children's Hospital Association, and we've been submitting data uh, to that collaborative the last couple of years. And interestingly, it appears that although it's not talked about as much nationally, this cohort of youth presenting with somatic complaints uh, is not only increasing, but there's a high rate of recidivism to the emergency room, to the medical hospital, because there's just a lack of um, comprehensive services in the community and still limited awareness of how to evaluate, manage uh the care of, of youth with somatic symptom and related disorders. So kind of what you're saying is there's these kids that the underlying issue is more the anxiety, the depression, the despair. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of that. And and what you're seeing is the kids coming in with chronic pain presentations or, or what's the most common somatic presentation that that you see in the emergency room or on the floors? So we um, see youth presenting with somatic complaints uh, for a variety of reasons. And just for awareness, somatic, all it means is bodily complaints. Uh, We use the word somatic uh, because a lot of the conditions associated with this concept of developing physical symptoms due to psychological distress uh, comes from terminology that uses that uh, word soma. Uh, so somatic symptom disorder, somatization, those are words we use in, in both mental health and physical health to describe this phenomenon. And it can be that youth present with mood disorders or anxiety disorders as driving factors. About 30 to 40% of youth will have a underlying anxiety disorder. Uh, up to 30% of youth may have a underlying mood disorder, but a good majority of these youth may not have a secondary Axis one DSM diagnosis. So they may present without much mental health history or, or denying these symptoms. And oftentimes, the more common presentation that we see in youth are youth with chronic stress and maladaptive ways of coping with that stress which then gets compounded by uh, a, a pretty negative feedback cycle that exacerbates the presentation of those physical symptoms. So to give an example, uh, see a school-aged child or an adolescent presenting with a, a long history of really excelling at school, being a top-notch student, uh, no real problem behaviors, and then presenting with abdominal pain or back pain or difficulties walking or uh, convulsive events. Uh, And a lot of times these symptoms uh, present in clusters of neurologic symptoms, uh, sensory symptoms, uh, motor symptoms, um, cognitive symptoms, or they may present often as GI complaints, nausea, vomiting, Uh, difficulties with stooling, abdominal pain. We also will see chronic fatigue, dizziness, uh, but oftentimes these symptoms are fairly subjective. There's oftentimes a heavy sensory component and a lot of impairments. And these are youth that are presenting with physical symptoms that are 
inconsistent with physical disease. So this is not the child who's presenting with pain, but their inflammatory markers are elevated. They have some, you know, uh, erythema or, or induration somewhere. We can't figure out what's going on. It's not that child. We're talking more about the child where their symptoms, their course, their presentations are very inconsistent with what we're finding on history and examination and diagnostic evaluation. And then when you dig into the history, what you find is a, is a child that may not express their emotions much, doesn't really perceive that they ever get stressed. So they tend to repress their stress or not communicate it. The demands on the child may be very high or um, they may have a very limited capacity to cope with that distress. There may be a lot of chronic stressors. Uh, and in some youth, there may be some trauma history as well. Although the association between trauma and the development of a somatic symptom disorder is not as strong as it would be in adults. Really? Uh, that That's interesting. That sort of surprises me. Yeah, it, it was uh, surprising for me to learn as well. But the rationale behind it is that somatic manifestations of psychological distress, of chronic difficulties with processing distress, uh, is actually more common in youth. Uh, if you think about younger children, when they get distressed, like they have a big exam or they're having difficulties at school or with interpersonal relationships, they'll tell you their belly hurts, their head hurts, um, you know, they're feeling fatigued. And we've all been there too as adults. Uh, sure. you know, if we're having a difficult day or we're, we're, we're approaching a difficult conversation, we may start to have physical complaints ourselves. But kids have a lack of capacity to express themselves verbally. And they may have more undifferentiated ways of expressing emotion and, and distress. So it's just much more common. And, and therefore, it doesn't really require trauma, just such mm -hmm. a significant fracturing of our emotional and cognitive sense of self that you don't need that level of um, uh, distress to uh, result in somatic complaints. Whereas for an adult, expressing those somatic complaints and, and regressing functionally really requires more of a significant stressor to, to really show those regressed behaviors. And so that's why the association is more prominent in adults and less uh, prominent in kids, just because we see somatization much more commonly in kids. Yeah, that's that. I mean, it totally makes sense. I, and and the the symptomology is real. I mean, it's yes. real pain. It's real impairment. Mm -hmm. But it's not appendicitis. It's not Crohn's disease. Uh, but of course, we have to go down that path. And so we, I mean, in pediatrics, get. I don't. I wouldn't say maybe hung up, but we get sort of stuck in having to do these big workups and sometimes we're we're barking up the wrong tree if we're not remembering this somatic connection so you know i think so many of us are afraid that we're going to miss the bad thing you know mm -hmm. is this you know the, what what's the first thing with a chronic headache oh my god is it a tumor yeah. you yeah. know and the parents are going there too so you have to kind of answer all those questions and that in and of itself is probably adding additional stress and then the coming back and saying well it's not those things well now you're left with well what is it and then i guess that's where you come in right <laughs> well and and i think you know 
a, a, a lot of this is about empowering ourselves with the tools to understand the, these conditions, understand their course, understand how to communicate these conditions, uh, what they mean and, and what management looks like. And largely for a lot of providers, they've received little to no education around this condition. And so they're confronted with those issues. You know, I, I don't really know what this is. You know, it doesn't really look like depression. It doesn't look like anxiety. The kids saying that they're not depressed, although I'm also detecting that maybe they be be minimizing some aspects of what's going on. And then you're confronted with this kid who's really impaired. Uh, the evaluation is largely negative and consistent with physical illness, and you have to do something. And that's where we oftentimes get stuck. And yeah. so the, the way I oftentimes conceptualize this for families pretty early on is that when we think about physical symptoms, there's kind of two main areas where physical symptoms are generated. One being actual damage to the body. And uh, that's where blood tests and imaging uh, and a variety of different tests that we use in medicine can be very helpful is to look for damage to cellular integrity, uh, to organ structure, to signs of inflammation. Uh, families can completely understand that. However, there's another part to the equation, which is the functioning of our body and our brain, where our brain receives signals from the body and then sends signals back that allow the body to function. Sometimes we call these sim symptoms functional symptoms, not because the patient is functioning, but it's an issue of the functioning of the brain-body connection. And so helping families understand that that's another area where we have potential pathology but no imaging, no blood test is going to detect that. That largely is detected based on clinical history, uh, examination, and, and awareness, as well as uh, a complete medical evaluation of anything else on the differential that seems reasonable to explore. And like you said, that's where you want to have a interprofessional team that you can engage, uh, whether it's social work, uh, psychology, psychiatry, uh, partners that can engage with you in these conversations, as well as subspecialty pediatricians who can reassure families, uh, provide guidance on the assessment if there's higher level questions about a particular organ system, school personnel, uh, yeah, other community resources that you could partner with to be able to talk holistically about the child and what's going on. Uh, and lastly, what I would say is for families, sometimes explaining it as a hardware or a software issue mm. that we've kind of ruled out the hardware uh, issues. And what we, what we have is a, is a software issue, which we can all appreciate, you know, uh, as much as our hardware may be completely intact, you know, our phones, our tablets, our computers are non-functional if the software is not processing information in a way that allows the program to work. And so for, for youth, because of, you know, dysfunction of emotional centers that can be habituated by a variety of different social, physical, emotional factors, these programs, these uh, software packages can be malfunctioning and, and cause a lot of disruption for the child. 
seems to me that clinicians, this kind of scripting, I mean, this understanding and the language that we need to use would make a whole lot of sense. I mean, that almost feels like that's a major step forward in the treatment and management is is shifting the focus from damage to body. I like that analogy to this brain-body connection. And I do think that in the mainstream media and stuff, you hear more and more about it and sort of this idea of holistic and mindfulness and all those things because of this body distress, you know, that it it's becoming more kind of understood. I actually did a podcast with Dr. Michael Lenz, who's a medpeds, and he does a lot of work with folks that have chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he talked a lot about changing the narrative and mm-hmm. also how much he enjoys working with those patients because he said, sometimes I'm the first person that has said, wow, your symptoms are real and there's ways that we can manage it, but it's different than what you think it's going to be. You know, it's Correct. not a medication. It's this whole other kind of way of looking at it. Correct. It, yeah. I mean, I think um, your guest, uh, your colleague, um, he, he hits it right on the head. I mean, I think a lot of it has to start off with understanding the patient family experience. You know, the, you, we have to remember that oftentimes when people present, they've been told a variety of different things. They've been frustrated because their child is significantly impaired. And, and so their experience may be really quite negative and may affect uh, the energy that they come into the situation with and what their expectations are. So clarifying that, but, you know, really highlighting one, that there is a very common condition that can explain a lot of the child symptoms too, that this is not a mental health issue. This is really a pediatric health issue that has significant mental health and physical health components that we need to address holistically and not in silos. Uh, And for a lot of our youth, just doing psychotherapy alone is not sufficient you need to have a rehabilitative approach, uh, engage physical therapy, occupational therapy, the school, the primary care physician. Sometimes there are physical factors uh, that may be contributing. You know, so a lot of our youth with chronic abdominal pain or chronic emesis may actually have a component of gastroesophageal reflux that's exacerbating the situation or constipation. And so you can do both, but you have to be very, very mindful of what you're addressing, really lay out the conceptual framework of what's going on. Uh, And as you stated very well, it really requires that you have a different approach, that it's not going to be about a surgery or a quick fix, a quick medication. It's really going to be more rehabilitation, rehabilitation of the mind, rehabilitation of the body help those connections work better. You know, all youth will get better. The The issues are either in lack of investment from the patient family, they just want to pursue a different approach, they can't buy into this model of care. Or frankly, there may be chronic stressors that are reinforcing the maintenance of symptoms. So for example, if a child is in a very nasty divorce, has difficulty with one caregiver or the other, they may start to develop difficulties walking. That difficulty walking may prevent them from interacting with one of those caregivers that they're struggling with. 
and subconsciously be protective for that child. And so what we have to do is understand, are there factors that are barriers to, to recovery? And how can we have that child uh, be able to address some of their anxieties and difficulties in that situation without necessarily having to lose the functioning of their legs? And so there's a lot of work around understanding the whole patient experience and how we can alleviate some of those barriers. Yeah, my brain is spinning thinking back to multiple cases that I think fit this. And I I love what you said about kind of sitting with the family and saying, gosh, this has been very difficult. I know you've been through a lot, all these evaluations, and it's been hard because there doesn't seem to be something that explaining, but but this is actually a very common condition when this brain-body disconnect. And, you know, our job is to help reconnect so that the body doesn't have to express the distress in this way. And we have a team. We're going to really look at this in a whole different way because what we've tried hasn't worked, And but there are things that do work. Yes. And you know, one of the things too that's really diagnostically informative early on is that each family is at a different place in their process of understanding and accepting this. So we have some families where they completely get it from the, from day one, or they may even have an inkling that this is what's going on. May really be very well versed around mental health conditions, uh, mental health issues. In those situations, you can you can really dive right in, talk about psychological and psychiatric concepts, and really think broadly about what to do. Uh, there are some families, though, that are on the opposite extreme, where they'd rather have their child uh, be diagnosed with some rare physical health condition. The idea of anything psychological or psychiatric is completely unbearable, and a lot of that has to do with the family's functioning around mental health. There may be some serious mental health in the family that's been a stressor. Historically, the family may, in general, uh, not value mental health or may have uh, different perceptions about how emotions and, and behavior should be discussed, may see mental health as a vulnerability or critique of the family. Uh, and so they may double down or triple down on a physical health conceptualization. And in some situations, I've actually seen parents really see the idea that there is a psychological component to the physical symptoms as very threatening to the child. The child may have been a victim of bullying or trauma or some other negative experience. And the, the parent may actually uh, advocate for the child to get more physical testing or to avoid any type of mental health services as their way of, quote, protecting the child, which which actually is doing a, a huge disservice to the child. But uh, you get the whole range. And, and so understanding where the family's at is really critical because in that latter family where they may be really resistant to the mental health conceptualization, you start off really talking about the mind-body connections and the you know, the physical aspects uh, of symptoms and really thinking about this more as like the alarm system of the body going off when there's actually no threat, right? So I put my hand on a stove, my alarm system is supposed to send physical and emotional signals to my brain 
to both tell me that I should take my hand off the stove and I should have a negative emotional experience. Why should I have a negative emotional experience? Well, that's how memories are formed through strong emotions, whether positive or negative. It helps us remember not to put our hand on the stove again, or the next time we are going to cook to check to see that the stove is is turned off before we put our hand anywhere. Uh, emotions are really important in that regard and um, helping families understand the biologic aspects of these uh, mind-body connections can be very helpful for some families that are not ready for the mental health piece to start engaging in some of the treatment. Well, and I'm wondering, and we've talked about this a little bit, you and I did an ECHO project where we talked about complex conditions, and we touched upon this idea of medical child abuse sort of when it becomes really dysfunctional or somehow the child's illness is somehow fitting a need for the parent. I, I think most of us would be more familiar with the term Munchausen by proxy. So how, how do we know when there might be a situation where, you know, this is a family in distress and they're just pushing more testing because they just can't kind of feel like your answer is enough. And, and so there must be something we're missing as opposed to someone that is getting secondary gain by their child being sick? I mean, is there kind of a continuum there? Yeah, Leah, that's that's a great question. And so there, there are caregivers that frankly present largely as perpetrators of medical child abuse. And really, we don't see, you know, the somatic component. We really see a very different trajectory. But we do see with, with youth who have somatic symptom and related disorders, particularly when understanding that conceptual framework and buying into uh, the diagnosis and, and the associated treatment plan is too distressing for the family for a variety of reasons. They keep resisting, they keep resisting. What ends up happening is in some, and this is a very small proportion, but it's really important to be mindful of this the child can start to really identify as being ill and really take on a lot of the concerns, suggestions that the caregiver is making and really sometimes sees their identity as being physically ill and, and can really start adapting their whole life to that identity that gets reinforced by the caregiver. And then the caregiver begins to receive some secondary gain from the attention they're getting for being that advocate for their child, for being, you know, so engaged in the health system, you know, it, it, trying to champion the betterment of their child. And, you know, in a uh, initially what oftentimes is a well-meaning advocacy becomes so uh, blinded to the conversations that are happening with the health system where repeatedly Members of the health system are, are telling the family that this is not consistent with physical illness. We're concerned about a psychological component. And the family is selectively accepting aspects of the evaluation and treatment and continuing to seek care in a way to fit their understanding of what's going on and not necessarily what's actually going on. And that pathology can take a life of its own such that the family becomes very wedded to a certain idea about what's going on with their child, disregarding a lot of evidence being presented, becoming infatuated with 
the idea that nobody's listening or, or engaging with them, and uh, it can really tip over into a medical child abuse situation where the family becomes consumed with uh, trying to assemble a team of providers that um, you know will will just uh, cater to their uh, belief of what's going on, and the child's kind of a passive participant oftentimes extremely deconditioned and, and not functioning well at all, so oftentimes socially isolated. So, you know, we always have to be mindful that uh, we we, we want to be uh, engaged with families. We want to understand their experience, address their concerns. But once we start to see that there is a complete disregard for medical advice, uh, potential iatrogenic injury to the child, uh, families engaging in, in activities they're being advised to not do, like removing kids entirely from school, placing them in homebound or virtual schooling and completely isolating them from normal routine against medical advice and doing this repeatedly. Uh, and, and, you know, the big red flag is if you start to see fading of symptoms or, or outright lying, reporting that one provider said this when they actually didn't or reporting that you had done certain things when you hadn't. It's a slippery slope. And in some of these situations, families are trying to meet a variety of different psychological needs and may go down a rabbit hole, sometimes not being aware of it, and occasionally uh, with intent. So again, I, you know, this is a rare phenomenon, but uh, unless you're aware of it and you're keeping your eyes open, it's often missed opportunity to intervene and think critically about what we can do. Uh, we've had a few situations in the past where we've had to contact, you know, authorities in the community, child protective services, because of serious harm occurring to youth, where initially a, a physical symptom spiraled out of control and was uh, reinforced by certain family behaviors. When you say rare, how, how rare? Because I think we all have situations where there are families that are just insisting that we continue to do more and more. And of course, it, it oftentimes involves painful procedures, expensive procedures, but those may not be this medical child abuse. So how common is that actual child abuse Munchausen? So, uh, you know, within the somatic symptom and really a disorders population, you know, what subset go on to develop this kind of medical child abuse picture. I don't know if we have that data, honestly. What I can say anecdotally is it's, you know, I work at a, a tertiary care children's hospital. And so I, I tend to see a lot of really physically ill youth. So that kind of uh, uh, distorts my my lens a little bit because I, I'm, I'm more likely to see this population than maybe providers that are seeing a wider catchment of, of youth. Um, but I'd say, you know, it's probably one in every few hundred youth mm -hmm. that present this way. We'll see one story that kind of takes a little bit of a different turn where the family is just kind of selectively doing things that um, they've been advised not to do or, or kind of representing the history in a contorted way. And when we start to see those warning signs, it's really important to, to do a few things. One is to just take pause and get together with the inter interdisciplinary team to verify the history, call the collaterals again, make sure 
you have the records, make sure you're getting the information from multiple sources and not just one source. Um, consider if the patient's in the hospital, having a, a, a patient attendant or a sitter in the room that can observe what's going on in the room you know, or you know, encourage nursing to document instances where you know, the, the family uh, or the patient may be doing things that are counter uh, to the treatment plan just so we can understand that better, review that better as a team. You know, contacting, uh, if you feel like there uh, is medical child abuse occurring, we're obligated to contact our child protection team. And oftentimes there are representatives within a hospital or an emergency room or even, you know, in primary care whether it's a social worker or a staff member that is more familiar with policies and practices that we can engage to have those conversations. But then ultimately, it's it's really about keeping good documentation, being very neutral, neutral language, uh, objective, but documenting what's going on because that documentation may help the child avoid an unnecessary surgery. I mean, we've had kids receive partial bowel resections, appendectomies, uh, cholecystectomies, a variety of different uh, significant surgical procedures for a variety of reasons uh, due to clinical concern that was maybe uh, without the awareness of somatic symptom disorder or, uh, you know, due to insistence from the family sometimes and, and providers feeling that they have no alternative. And so being able to document very thoughtfully is really important. And then, you know, if, if we know that a family is going to another site for a second or third opinion, it, you know, it's important to, you know, allow the family to have that space to, to do that, but also for the other site to review the records uh, and not to be kind of walking in blindly, knowing that in some of these situations, the families may not necessarily present the information consistently. So again, you know, uh, with somatic symptom and, and related disorder, disorder care, it's extremely family-centered and, and really about understanding the patient-family experience and partnering with them. What I'm talking about here is that very, very small subset, you know, one in a few hundred, one in a thousand cases where there really is a dynamic between the patient and the family where they want to sustain for whatever reason, that level of pathology, that level of disability, and, and there's consistent um, disregard for recommendations from the care team that poses a risk to the child. Ooh, I just listening to you like makes me stressed. <laughs> like, oh, you know, because it it's just such a tangled mess, and I mean, it's just obviously the parent is not well when they're doing that, and and it's awful for the child and the the clinicians are, you know, wondering what to do. Am I missing something? And, you know, it all gets messy, but kind of a relief to know that that is also not that common. Yes. So, so let me ask you just as we kind of wind down here, what are, what are the best recommendations? I mean, you, you've talked about family centered, about explaining, using some language, some metaphors like hardware, software, I like that example. What are some things that we can then offer with this sort of, you know, a, a team when we don't have access to a you? Yes. Um, I, you know, because many, many hospitals and many clinicians don't have access to a child psychiatrist or a CL team. I know there are child psychiatry access programs like mm -hmm. we have here in Michigan, you know, where we could possibly 
have a consult with somebody, at least a, you know, curbside consult for the clinician. So what what are your recommendations about the what do we do part? Yeah, you know, so I, I will frame this in the lens of a primary care practice that has limited access to subspecialty care and mental health services, which I think is probably the more common scenario than what I what I experience, uh, you know, where I work. And so, you know, first and foremost, I, I think for all of us, um, for a variety of reasons, we have to identify who are our partners or contacts around certain issues, you know. So a lot of primary care providers say, well, you know, I have a neurologist that I will often bounce ideas off of or refer to or a cardiologist and building those relationships is important. I think building a relationship with um, a social worker, psychologist, um, psychiatrist, mental health professional. And as part of that, you know, trying to ask that person or persons or that practice, uh, what experience do you have with somatic symptom related disorders, but that interface between emotional health, physical health, because a lot of practices don't have that knowledge. And so sometimes inviting somebody from an academic center or partnering with an academic center in terms of educating certain practices or educating your own practice can be helpful. But I I think it's really important to identify who that partner is on the mental health side that's going to help you. Because I think as a primary care physician, ER dog, hospitalist, there's just a certain limitation as to kind of the level of that expertise you're going to be able to speak to. So the second thing I would do is th- there's some good literature on this that's emerging in, in, in pediatrics. There's some good review articles. Um, there Recently, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry published a clinical pathway for the care of this population. I would look at those manuscripts, read them, maybe copy them and have some of the graphics that are in there uh, available uh, so that if you do encounter a situation like this, you can quickly review it. And in uh, the ACAP publication, there's actually some scripting, scripting on how to introduce this concept, scripting on how to talk about the mind-body connections, scripting on management. And so that scripting can be really helpful in terms of grounding your education or uh, education communication with the family around this condition. Uh, then I, you know, also believe that really having handouts uh, to give to families can be helpful because uh, they want to read more about this. And the uh, NAPNAP, the nurse practitioner organization, has a really lovely handout on pediatric somatic symptom disorders. Uh, American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry also does. Their, the title of their facts for families is, is something of uh, the sense of you know emotional uh, symptoms and physical symptoms presenting together. And so ha- having some of those handouts, uh, reviewing that, having them available, that'll help. Because I think if you can deliver the diagnosis, if you can communicate around it, and then if you have a mental health partner that can you can either connect the patient to or can speak to this issue can really help you. And for a lot of these youth, uh, mild and moderate presentations, it really may be about getting them in for, with a therapist to help with uh, coping strategies, partnering with the school on a functional plan to return to school, and then just walking with the families through what factors may be additional barriers, you know, a bullying incident, uh, in interpersonal conflict, uh, family dynamics, and that, that can help 
point you in the right direction. Uh, ultimately, you know, you also have to recognize what you can and can't do. And there may be situations where you just need to refer to a higher level of care. But I'll tell you, that, you know, those three or four steps, that's three or four steps that most people are not taking right now. And if you can take a few of those and, and just incorporate them into your practice, it, it'll make a, a huge difference. And there, there have been studies that have shown that up to 30 to 40% of a primary care practice may involve patients that have somatic complaints. They may be transient. They may not be particularly severe, but undifferentiated pain and, and uh, other physical symptoms that have a psychological component. I mean, that's a, that's a very common issue that providers see. So having some tools in your toolkit to help families, uh, a good chunk of them won't need to see a psychiatrist, won't need to be in the hospital, and you can really make a difference. Yeah, I, I think that we we all know about kids with chronic headaches, chronic stomach aches, sleep problems, you know, that make us scratch our head. And and you're right, most of them are not so severe that they're impairing or requiring hospitalization, but they're in our offices a lot and they're the kind we we often will <laughs> sigh, <laughs> you know, not knowing what to do next. So I will make sure to get all of those references you mentioned, I'll put those in the show notes for listeners. Well, listen, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I think it's very applicable to physicians, whether you're in the emergency room, on the floors, or, you know, if you're in a primary care practice, this is this is common yeah, stuff. Yeah, you, you can't avoid it. And <laughs> if you do try to avoid it, you know, unfortunately, the youth and families come back and, and um I've seen that situation where, you know, kids bounce between their ERs, their primary care providers, different subspecialists, and it's really frustrating for everybody. So the idea is just to cut down some of that frustration by providing a framework to help support these youth and families. And back to your point of, um, about the population with chronic fatigue, um, it is extremely gratifying because this is a subset of youth that don't really have a, a great home for their care, bounce around, utilize a lot of services, and, and, and are very frustrated because they get a lot of mixed messages. And so to have a PCP or an ER doc um, provide them a, a glimmer of hope and understanding, a partnership on something that's meaningful it's amazing to see some of these kids get better because they go from not attending school, not functioning to highly, highly functioning individuals that um, it just can be extremely gratifying. So I just have to have the right approach. Well, we like hope. <laughs> it's one of the joy. It's one of the joys of pediatrics. Is oftentimes we we can um, improve the trajectory. We're the upstream, if you will, so that. You know, these are functioning young adults and adults. And, and so these coping behaviors, you know, the strategies that aren't very effective can can become, you know, a thing of the past and they can learn other ways. So, well, listen, thank you so much for your um, insights, wisdom, your expertise. And um, I think most of us just wish we had more of you. Thank you. Uh, really appreciate the invite. And uh, thanks so much, Leah. All right. Take care, Nasu. Take care. I think this was a really fascinating conversation, and I have a long list of takeaways. So number one, 
thank you to Dr. Mollis for his wisdom, expertise, and time. I wish we all had a Dr. Mollis in our hospital settings, right? Number two, in the cyclone of respiratory disease, we continue to see an increase in mental health disorders, eating disorders, self-injurious behavior, suicidal ideation, aggression, and an ongoing lack of access to mental health services. Number three, for children and teens with somatic complaints that result in emergency room visits or hospitalization, there is a high rate of recidivism. So how do we make a dent? Number four, many clinicians do not fully understand somatic disorders and the brain-body connection. I'm glad you're here to learn more. Number five, body complaints and physical symptoms have a tight link with psychiatric distress. And 30 to 40% of kids with somatic disorders have anxiety. 30% have mood disorders. Number six, these symptoms often present with a history of chronic stress. For example, abdominal pain, back pain, seizures, clusters of neurologic symptoms, chronic fatigue, and dizziness with lots of impairment that is inconsistent with organic disease. And I, I know you all know what I'm talking about. Number seven, many of these patients are unable to express emotions and have a limited capacity to cope, resulting in somatic manifestations of stress. Number eight, we can start by empowering ourselves with knowledge and putting together a toolbox of strategies, starting with some analogies for parents. One of the things that Dr. Mollis discussed was laying it out that, you know, there's damage to the body by organic disease where you see positive tests like rheumatoid arthritis. And then there are these body-brain disconnect signals that result in symptoms, but tests are negative. The other example he gave was hardware versus software. And I think those are really helpful to put in your toolbox. Number nine, we need to understand the patient family experience. And many of them feel that doctors think this is all in their head and not real. And there is just so much impairment. Number 10, we can also share that this is actually a common condition that explains the symptoms. It's not necessarily a mental health disorder, but is both physical and mental symptoms, and that this will get better. We're offering hope. Again, put that in your toolbox. Number 11, you need a team. Might include a nurse care manager, mental health professional, sometimes OT or PT, sometimes psychiatry if you can access that. And don't forget your child psychiatry access programs. And sometimes you can, you know, even team up with neurology, cardiology, GI, schools, all the partners that can help. Number 12, some families may not be ready to hear this explanation, preferring instead a rare condition versus any possibility of a psychological component. And some are wed to the disease model, continuing to seek consults. And for a very small number, maybe one in a thousand in tertiary care centers, this can take on a life of its own. Number 13, medical child abuse, also known as Munchausen by proxy, begins with well-meaning families who continue to seek care, and then it gets complicated. There is disregard of evidence and advice. The family becomes consumed, and kids may become isolated and homebound, and the ill child is somehow filling some sort of need. Number 14, this is a hard one. We too may want to pursue the, quote, medical source, 
Dr. Mollis recommends take a pause, verify the history, get information from multiple sources, confirm advice from other physicians, be neutral, review records, and document. Number 15, some final pearls. Take a family-centered approach. Partner with others who may have experience with somatic disorders. Those are our medical subspecialists I mentioned up above. Partner with academic institutions. Connect with therapists who can offer coping strategies and coaching. Have materials on hand, and I'll include links to the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, Facts for Families, as well as the NAPNAP resource uh, that Dr. Mollis referenced. And finally, offer hope. Number 16, thanks to all of you. You are rock stars, and this stuff is really hard. Number 17, Check out my website at www.medicalbhs.com for my first ever newsletter and a freebie tool to assess your practice readiness to manage mental health concerns. Number 18, would love to hear from you on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown, on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gagino, or you can sign up for my emails and you can find me that way too. I would love to hear your suggestions and get to know a little bit more about you. Take care and I hope you'll join me next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown and I hope you found it as interesting as I did. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero. If you would like to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Dr. Leah Gagino and on Instagram at Pediatric Meltdown. I would love listener ideas and suggestions and hope to hear from you. Thank you so much, and I hope you will join me next week.